things are getting interesting. Sussman wrote this script, but this was one of those group project things. Braga contributed some. Bermanus contributed some. Um, originally, this was going to be Orion slavers or Orion pirates, and this is going to help establish how they became that way over in TOS. For reasons I wasn't able to suss out. Sorry. I, they didn't do that. Instead, they decided to make this this brand new species because, well, again, I have no idea why. What do you think? Do you think the Orions would have worked a little bit better? Or do you think it would have worked better if it's just a new species? I mean, we've had a lot of discussions over the years about small world syndrome and how that is a problem when you lean heavily on continuity. And the larger the setting, the more of a problem it gets when you just start running into things that are always connected, right? You could practically call that Skywalker Syndrome, for God's sakes. But the point is, there's always has to be like a give and take when it comes to that. Because on the one hand, you kind of do want things to be contiguous. You want there to be connecting points. But on the other hand, if there's too many, well, then that's just a problem. Finding that balance is an interesting mix. And that's the only answer I have to give as to why it is they decided not to use the Orions here. I don't know, again. So how do you challenge a team on the Enterprise? Now... I've been talking about this uh, since Voyager, I think, is the first time I've really been talking about it. So, in the decade range. God, I've been working on this show for over ten years now. That's a weird thought. It's not a bad thought. I mean, I, I, I love I love my job. <laughs> you know, this is good stuff. I'm with it. It's just... Wow. Anyways. I've been working on this job for older... For longer than my niece is old. Hmm. So... How do you challenge a crew that has access to skilled people and talented tech and amazing stuff? And How do you challenge them? And answering that question has always been one of the difficult questions of Star Trek writers. Sometimes they do it stupidly and we end up having a threat of the week. Sometimes they do it in a way that makes perfect sense. I think this is one of the better examples we've seen in recent memory. We've got an area that is already pre-established to be a very dangerous place in space. You'll notice in the last episode... Uh, the Arboreal Councilman specifically, actually, he has a name, I don't remember right now, forgive me, flat out said, you know, oh, well, if they're going to that area, then they're dead. They're not going to survive. Just that little in anecdote and the idea that this place is terribly dangerous and that's already been established by the anomalies they've already encountered and then we encounter the dead ship, which is already being pulverized by the area. You get it. So them being damaged by the anomalies and thus being brought down to low, the low level makes sense, is contiguous with what's been happening so far, and is a good way to bring the power level more equal. Because in a normal circumstance, the NX-01 would probably crush these guys like a bug. You'll notice that at the end of the episode when they're fighting them, the only reason that the other ship has any shot at all is because they're trying to not destroy them. Like, you got that, right? If it wasn't for the fact that they were actively trying to not destroy them, they would have just crushed them effortlessly. Even under the damaged state and partially repaired state that they were in, while missing some of their freaking fuel, they still would have beaten them. I mean, it takes one shot to disable them once they're there. Anywho, <clears throat> so, logical. Uh, this then leads them to finding another another uh, ship. Like, okay, let's check it out. So Archer goes in on the boarding team. Uh, okay. <laughs> I know. But this this is a misstep in my opinion. Why is Archer there? Reed barely makes sense. You know, having having a flag officer over there. Okay, sure, fine. But uh, Archer got to personally go over to the enemy. I know, I know it's the Kirk thing, but 
it never made sense with Kirk either, to be completely blunt, but at least they made efforts to try and explain that. Here, Archer's just kind of doing it because Archer's always has done it, because Janeway did it, because Cisco did it, because, well, Riker did it, because Kirk did it. Like, it's, there's, there's no reasoning to have him there. Sorry for commenting on this, but it's a weird point, especially since it has nothing to do with Archer's actual character arc, which we'll get to in just a moment. So there's the dead ship, there's repairs, laws of physics are being different. Second point of the story I don't like. I mean, if the laws of physics are different, then the laws of physics are different. It doesn't mean that things get bended and warped periodically. It means that pi isn't the same value, which, I mean, granted, you can't visually show that, but that's exactly my point. Now, I know, I know, it's Star Trek and we're supposed to just magic wave it away, but come on. It's okay, they managed to fix it inside of the episode's breaths and somehow get warp drive working, even though... <sighs> Whatever. <clears throat> so they show the pirates, okay... Now, what's interesting about the pirates is they do a decent idea here. They do a decent idea? They have a decent idea. What they do is normally when an enemy ship attacks and then boards the crew, what happens is we cut to the the command staff. Oh, my God. Scramble security and Worf or, you know, whoever. Worf on TNG or Worf on, on TS9. Or, you know, Tuvok or whatever is like, well, yes, we have a response. We're scanning them on this deck. And most of the action will follow the main cast as they respond to the incursion. Just look at any of the dozen times the Kazon, dozen might be, the six or seven times the Kazon boarded the Voyager over on Voyager. For an example, what I'm talking about. Instead, the camera entirely follows the pirates. This, I think, was a good idea because it helps to change the flow up a little bit and it shows that they are very methodical in what they're doing. Dun, dun, dun. Grab this in here, grab this in here. Oh, there's opposition, and then they start fighting back. Notice that by the time the heroes do show up, they're fully prepared with the Makos and ready to go. And already have, in some cases, like, uh, I don't want to say ambushes, but it's it's clear they have a plan of attack already established. Credit to Tucker, despite being sleep-deprived, he's the only one who managed to defeat any of them. Now, on the one hand, I want to make fun of this encounter, because it's not exactly a big win. But on the other hand, they managed to take only one casualty, take an enemy prisoner, and not lose more than they could have. They lose some of the armory, they lose half the food. The antimatter is really the big thing, although the food is probably relevant as well, but you get the point. So it could have been much worse. This is the first Enterprise crew death, by the way, Fuller. Now, I was hoping for that, that they would do something with this. I've talked many, many times about how much I am against the red shirt concept. Not the idea of someone dying. Not the idea of an extra die. That's fine. Trek has even done that well, periodically, throughout history. But the problem is a death of a crew member should mean something. It should have some impact. As much as I love Deep Space Nine, I still use Deep Space Nine and the episode where the, the internal defenses get turned on, I can't remember what that's called, uh, as one of the worst examples of redshirt deaths in all of Trek history. Because one random guy, who is not named and not mentioned, just gets vaporized on the bridge, and they never even mention it again. It was literally just there to be a redshirt death. Cheap. A cheap way to show, hey, things are serious. Now, I'm fully fine with using death as a way to show that the stakes are serious. It's the Death Star mentality. For those of you not aware, back during the creation of Star Wars A New Hope, originally, everyone lived through the Death Star in, in several of the original drafts of the script. And it was uh, Lucas's wife, I can't remember her name right now, please forgive me, who posited the idea, well, hang on we should probably have someone die here, because otherwise this whole thing looks like a joke. And she's right. And so using the death... And, and it wasn't just then they killed off someone. They decided to kill off someone in a major and impactful way that would then have a lasting impact on the characters. 
And that's my point. If you're going to do character death, do it. Embrace it. Make it have a lasting impact. Don't just be like, oh, they're dead. And don't just bring them back, for that matter. Both the death and the bringing back of it happens should be a significant moment. This is why this episode kind of fell flat for me in that in that one respect, because I was expecting them to really bring up the Fuller thing and have it be a significant point. And in two separate scenes, they do showcase that. Twice. But that is it. Twice they bring up the fact that Fuller died, and that sucks, and that's the end of it. So, partial credit, I suppose? They're getting there. You know, it's it's working. This was something Sussman himself actually pushed for, by the way, the idea that they had to kill someone off. And, well... I, again, I kind of agree. We need to show the dangers of this place. Otherwise, we've got a problem. <sighs> Moving on. Um, so Fuller dies. <sighs> now, um, so they need their supplies back. This is the interesting part. It's implied that most of the people they pirate either resist and die, or fail and die, or just kind of are left adrift and die. I get the very strong impression they've never encountered some a group who actually has a definitive mission like the Enterprise does. Most of these people are just people who are surviving in the Expanse, or doing what they can to, to day-to-day. The Enterprise is here for a reason, and that reason means they can't just let this go, and they can't just drift on, and they can't just go. So they do everything in their power, even to the point of possible self-harm, in order to find the ship, which they do. Now, this leads to the main beat of the episode. Are you willing to descend to what is necessary? As he's interrogating the prisoner. Small side note here. This is when we finally get... Finally, it's like episode two. This is when we get the Trillium D exposition. Oh, okay, that's how Trillium D works. Cool. It's interesting because this is extremely important information. I'm not sure Archer realized how invaluable that information was that he was just given by this guy. It will come up in a future episode, I'll just tell you that. But the guy just volunteers that. That is like saying, oh God, I, I'm not even trying to come up with a real-life equivalent. That's like saying you need a breathing apparatus to go underwater if you somehow didn't know that already, right? I mean, that is incredibly useful information. Sorry, I just wanted to comment on that. Anyways, so then they mention how they need to prey on their, their uh, easy targets. This is because they themselves are not super strong or super dealt with, so that's cool. And then we get a Reed and Tucker scene. This is where the Fuller thing comes up for the last time, actually. Don't be cynical, haha, reference. And there's the sphere. Remember what I mentioned about lucky breaks? <laughs> they happen to get pirated by the... They happen to go to a dangerous part of space, which is a place that is heavily pirated because ships there are more likely to get damaged. And that pirate group, we can, un, we can infer, has managed to find one of these spheres, which is projecting a cloaking field and therefore makes for a perfect base. Even within this episode, this isn't a spoiler, it's very clear these pirates didn't make this sphere. They happened to find it by luck or circumstance, and then have been using it as an outpost. And it's a perfect outpost. It's this massive thing which puts out, you know, energy and has gravimetric distortions on a giant cloaking field in an area of space that's already very dangerous. And it's got tons and tons of room for them to just store stuff on board. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. It is funny to me, because they don't really leave anything behind to defend it, and why would they? Indeed, how could they, given limited crew and resources? This means that... This is one of those things. Uh, one of the best ways to defend something is to not defend it. This is a There's a line of tactical thinking that goes along that. Don't put your troops over there. Don't put your people over there. Just put the resources there and don't draw any attention to it. 
Now, it's a gamble, because by doing that, you're making it a wide-open, empty target, but you're also making it much harder to notice that target is there. That's that's the payoff. That's the trade-off, I should say. So, if someone finds that little outpost that you haven't been defending, guess what? They can just sweep it, which is exactly what they do. They, just, they even have a montage of them getting all their supplies back. That took them all 20 minutes. <laughs> but that's not the point of this. Being out-pirated and having their supplies stolen isn't really the point. They're under the gun, but they're managing. So I'm with that, narratively and thematically. The point is the sphere. Make sure you scan all you can while you're here. We also find out this thing is over a millennia old, by the way. Just wanted to mention that for the future. 19 kilometers in diameter, too. That is huge by Trek standards, honestly. Trek usually doesn't do the big, you know, macro... uh, macro construction type thing like certain other <clears throat> Star Wars settings like to do. So, yeah, that's that's pretty big. So they get all the supplies. Everything's cool. Tucker isn't sleeping because he doesn't have time. Now, it's implied that he might be a little bit uncomfortable with T'Pol, but nevertheless, it is very clear that he is not sleeping still. And that is a problem because he's starting to have issues. He actually gets second-degree burns from just a slip-up. Speaking personally, sleep deprivation is no joke. It's actually very, very horrifying because at a certain point... You know, we always talk about powering through or willpower. At a certain point, that stops working. If I could use an analogy, which is probably more relatable. Have you ever done, like, uh, exercise weightlifting kind of a thing? Okay, maybe that's a little less relatable. It's the same concept. You can push those muscles, and you can push them way past when you might think they can. But there is a certain point where the muscles stop working. And I've, I've hit that point. I'm sure several of you have hit that point. Where, where it doesn't matter how much you try or what you do, the muscles just stop responding to commands. It's the same thing with sleep deprivation. At a certain point, it doesn't matter how hard you try or what your will score is. You're just going to start screwing up and mistaking things in your brain. is going to start kind of internally shutting down to effectively force a degree of sleep upon you, a degree of rest, I should say, upon you while you're operating. So, Tucker, maybe you should go, oh, no, you can put these leeches in. No, no, I'll I'll go to Paul. Thanks. So, Archer... Archer goes and tortures the guy. You know, it's not, it's not, let's not miss, mince words. Takes the guy to the airlock. Torture, torture, torture. Finds out about the ship. Cool. Uh, he. Why exactly is it that he crosses the line specifically about the Zindi? You could say it's due to his mission, but I like to think that it's due to it being a soft spot for him, or a sore spot, if you will. That he's he, that that injures him. Simply hearing about the Zindi is like, oh well. You're going to call me chicken? Sorry, Back to the Future reference. Um, This leads to lucky break number two, and they defeat the enemy ship, they get the data, and there's a quote that said, Mercy is not a quality that will serve you well in the expanse, Captain. Do me a favor and remember that, okay? Now that's kind of it. You're thinking, Laura, this is a really short rumination. And you're right, because there's not a lot to cover. There's a lot of action, a lot of montage scenes. You gotta get the feel that while they're kind of new to this whole string continuity thing that I've referenced many, many times, they're also trying to stretch the episodes a little bit. Now that makes sense. They are kind of running at a low of a low budget here. And, well, they're probably mapping out what normally would be one episode across like three. And so they're kind of stretching one episode across three, you know, and so there's a little bit of that here and there. I don't want to go to the full extent of calling it padding, but there is just a lot of otherwise downtime in the visuals and the presentation of the episode. But no, the real reason is I wanted to save this for last. Uh, I actually don't want to talk about this, if I'm being completely blunt. Let's talk about torture. Now, let's get this out of the way. 
torture, not effective, blah, blah, blah. Duh. Okay, let's, let's just, let's just start with that. It is also worth noting that there's a lot of different types of torture. What, th- what happens here is very basic and standard physical torture. You will die of asphyxiation unless you tell me something. So tell me what I want to know. Okay. Now, what's funny to me is I have seen more discussion about this exact action and the torture that Archer does here and, spoilers, in the future, than anything else about Season 3 of Enterprise. What surprises me about that is I find it to be the least interesting aspect to talk about. Now, I'm going to try to explain why. First of all, 24. For those of you who don't remember, that was a show where Jack Bauer would torture someone and get information, but it's okay because he has to do it. He's pushed to the wall. Um, Braga himself very much wanted to work on 24, and I don't have the timeline in front of me, but at some point he actually was able to go work on 24, so that's cool. So you kind of get that same general vibe from it. But uh, I do want to mention that, because of course Braga didn't write this. Oh, actually Braga did write the airlock epi- uh, scenes. So never mind, Braga did write that. Ah. Um there's, um, okay, effectiveness aside, we accept a lot of things in Hollywood and fiction, so, okay, fine, tortures somehow works magically in fiction, sometimes, okay, sure, I'm willing to at least accept that, but that leads us into the ickier question, should, not not can, not does, but should, now, I'm not a big advocate of torture, I know, very comp- complex and very uh, controversial opinion there. What's happening here is they're attempting to repeat the beats for Archer's story that was already done over in in the Pale Moonlight for Cisco in Deep Space Nine. And they're doing it worse, despite the fact that they have all of the tools to do it better. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the Pale Moonlight was a triumph. Let's just start with that. I mean, I, I had the rumination of the gushination. Um, that was a big focus on his character, on Garrick's character, and on the political situation and the drama of what was happening. That was also arguably a bigger stakes than the situation, but even that is kind of debatable. While the Dominion War was larger scale, given the percentage situation, this is arguably bigger scale. Because that was merely the Alpha Quadrant and, you know, the possible domination of an external force. Whereas this is the total annihilation of the human race alongside the total alteration of time for the next infinite years. So you can see how this could be argued to be larger stakes. If nothing else, it is certainly more personal. Yes, I know that Wei Yun was going to wipe out Earth. I stand by my statement. But my point is, the stakes things is arguable. So that that's not something that's part of the equation. Whether it's bigger stakes or smaller stakes is going to be more of an individual opinion, not a statement of codified facts. So throwing that out the window, okay? So instead, it is similar stakes. Now, a Starfleet captain has to undertake a deep personal sacrifice that's going to scar him mentally and emotionally in order to try and accomplish something because doing things the right way is simply not working. Okay, same general beats. There are a couple of variances here. First of all, in the Pale Moonlight was actually Sisko being manipulated in that situation, and how he was complacent was the fact that he ultimately accepted and indeed embraced it because he knew that it was the correct call, even if it was the wrong call. Here, Archer walks up and is the one who says openly and to the camera's face, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do this. This is also the second time he said that. That beat doesn't land as well for me. Because the problem here is... Well, God, there's actually a lot of problems here. 
The first is the fact that it's easier to forgive Cisco for what he did. Because ultimately, Cisco was complacent, but not what you'd call an initiator. There's a difference between someone who shoots someone and someone who covers up for the person who shoots someone, to, to, to simplify. Cisco was covering up for the shooter. Archer was shooting. And so, from a moralistic perspective, we have a more of a tendency to be rooting for Cisco than we are for Archer. I mentioned there was a lot of discussion about this. Overwhelming majority of it is negative. While many people tend to like season three in general, they tend to dislike the torture elements of this and the fact that, you know, Archer is like, oh, I will do whatever it takes. But that leads me, a lot of that is probably on the moralistic tint. And no insult intended, I just don't actually care about that because the problem is it's not well presented. This is my second major problem with this. You heard what I said earlier, right? Archer flat out states to the camera, twice, in three episodes, that we'll do whatever it takes. That is pretty much the definition of telling, not showing. Now, later they actually show him torturing the guy, but then he, he kind of reiterates the point before that. So it's actually three times in, in the episodes that we are covering here. He's... The writer is telling the audience that he is undergoing this character arc. And that just doesn't land for me at all. Cisco, while he was still narrating directly to a camera because he was dictating his log, was mostly him trying to talk to himself. To talk himself through it. You know, I can live with it. And the interpretation that's left there. By contrast, Archer is like, I will do this. And that's it. There's no nuance. There's no interpretation. There's... It, it also kind of skips all the beats. That's my... We're up to problem three now, by the way. So, it's more moralistically wrong. It's far less present, well presented. And it doesn't establish itself first. They've done all this stuff to establish all, most of season three. And almost all of it's good. You'll notice the Tucker arc has been slowly building across multiple episodes. Just a few scenes here and there. By contrast, the Archer arc is already like two-thirds of the way through it in the second episode of season three, effectively the third episode. Like, they're just slamming through it at full tilt. And, well, that leads me to a phrase that I myself use called darkier and edgier. Now, darkier and edgier is when someone tries to be darker in terms of their storytelling, more mature, more serious, and fails and goes too far or gets too silly. And it gets to the point where it's just like, oh, yeah, sure, uh-huh. Don't cut yourself on that edge. You know, that kind of a comment. Because that's what's happening here. Archer is not facing a terrible choice that is forcing him in order to compromise his morals. Archer is embracing this because we not we need to get to that edginess as quickly as possible to establish that this is a new era of Trek and that this is how Enterprise is different. You see the problems here? So while I could sit and discuss the in-universe morality and implications of correct versus incorrect and right versus wrong, as I've actually already done many times... I find that to be a disinteresting conversation because the whole arc is stupid. And, final point, is not Archer's actual arc in Season 3. Now, I can't tell you what his actual arc is, because that's going to be a much further ways in. But I stand by that statement firmly. This is not Archer's arc. This is something that's being grafted to a character, which Archer happens to be the one because he's the main character, in order to try and establish how dark, darkier and edgier the Enterprise is in Season 3. Reminder, I'm down with darker storytelling. I love dark storytelling. I write dark story. I'm not sure I'm capable of not writing dark storytelling. All my stories have, you know, the 
unpleasant, mature, dark kind of tones to them, because that's just the kind of stuff I write, and because I've been through hell in my life, although that's a theory, not a fact. But, um, I mean, obviously it's a fact that I've been through it. It's a theory that that's why I write like that. I'm not sure if that's true or not. It's something my sis brought up to me once. <sighs> this, because it fails so hard, is something that I just can't find myself buying in-universe. If towards the end of the episode, Archer was like, yeah, no, I, I, we'd actually injected him with something that was going to make him pass out. And it was all just a hoax the whole time would actually line up better with what's being presented than the idea that Archer has just outright embraced the idea so quickly and efficiently. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm afraid I don't actually have anything to say about the torture itself. Maybe I'll have something to say about the next time it shows up. I don't know. I am, of course, extremely interested in your thoughts on this point, though. Especially this point, because like I said, most discussed point about Season 3. So feel free, jump in the comments. Give me paragraphs. I read all of those, every single one of them. I've said that before, and I'll say it again. I read every comment that comes in. And I'm curious what you think. <sighs> Either way, we're, we're moving along, keeping things going. We've got the Zindi database. We have lucked out massively twice so far on The Expanse. We'll see how our luck holds in the next time. See you around.